You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 147 of Life in Ruins Podcast, where we investigate the careers and research of those living life in ruins. I am your host, David Ian Howe, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnen and Connor Johnen. For this week's episode, we are joined by McKenna Latinsky, a newly minted PhD student at the University of Wyoming. And we say newly minted because she literally just defended her master's thesis this past week and we snagged her as soon as we could. McKenna is also the youngest person we know in graduate school, let alone have a master's degree. We'll talk about that. Her fieldwork and research took place at, you guessed it, the Laprella Mammoth site in New Hampshire. Just kidding, Wyoming, like everything else we talk about. And let's get into all that and what she'll be doing for her PhD. Welcome to the show, McKenna. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's such an honor to be here, honestly. I've listened to your podcast so much, so it's kind of surreal being in this position of being interviewed. So thanks for having me. There will be better things on your CV than doing this podcast. I can tell you that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, you probably shouldn't put this on your CV. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. But seriously, I'm, I'm very excited. Can I ask you how you are like feeling in general? post master's degree? Yeah, it's very surreal. I mean, I just defended like four days ago. So I'm very fresh off of the defense. I was quite nervous going into it, but also kind of confident because I worked really hard for my research. I I knew the topic pretty well. So I think coming off of that, I'm very excited that I get to be called Master McKenna Latinsky now. That's pretty cool. Um, I'm also pretty relieved just to know that the process is done and I can take some time to work on my other publications, my other projects, work on, you know, helping my students more in my TA position, things like that. But yeah, overall, I'm just like, do I really have a master's? It's it's very weird. (laughs) It is a weird feeling for sure. Connor and I have also gone through that. Yeah. Because it's like, you're not a PhD. You don't get like a new title. You're not doctor- McKenna or Dr. David, but you're like, you have a higher degree and you have to tell people, oh, actually I have two degrees. <laughs> it's like a weird, weird situation to be. I don't know how you feel about that, Connor, but. Yeah. Well, and so I get to fill out like an extra step in some things. It's like, yeah. what is your highest level of education? Oh, I went to graduate school. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but also I feel like there was a weight on my shoulders when I was doing my, my master's degree. And I think that weight gets lifted once you defend. And I like felt at peace for like the first time in a long time. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it because like your two years are leaning up to this defense, like this one moment in your life that only lasts a couple hours. So yeah, I understand that feeling a little bit. I think it's going to take me a couple more days to like truly feel it and be like, oh my gosh, I really am done. (laughs) But yeah. yeah. (laughs) But ride the high while you can, I will say. Yeah. One of my favorite nights of my life was my master's thesis defense and the party after. It was just like, just that relief. (laughs) Like It was was so nice of years of just mental trauma and stress and anxiety and like all of that in grad school into like, okay, I'm done. Except you are not done because you are doing another, what, four or five years of PhD there? Yeah, at the University of Wyoming. Yep. Hopping into that PhD program. I don't know if I'm crazy or I'm just... Interesting. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, and I think we'll get we'll get dive deeper into that and kind of see where your research is going. But to start us off, what is kind of like your first memory with archaeology, history, the past, dinosaurs, asteroids? 
Goblins. Meteorites. Goblins. Yeah. It's a really good question. It's something that's like, I think, bigger than just like this interview. But I feel like my first instances of like archaeology per se are like the typical Indiana Jones, like watching those movies and being like, oh, he's stealing something from a cave. Uh, There's a boulder rolling down to kill him. Cool. That's archaeology, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, I've seen a couple of documentaries, but I didn't As a kid, I never really understood the archaeological process very well. It's just like cool findings, right? Like Mayans and Egyptians and just cool shit, for lack of better words, across the the world. But yeah, I don't think it was really until my undergrad that I realized what that discipline actually meant, like the rigorous nature of the field and how important it is to our understanding of like where we are today. I feel like that's a great answer <laughs> actually. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, did, did you just happen into an anthropology course, archeology span course, or was that something you were looking for? Yeah. So my, as a kid, you know, everybody has different life goals. They're like, I want to be a doctor. I want to be an astronaut. I definitely went through all of those phases. <laughs> I, I had like 10 different jobs that I was like, I'm going to be that. I'm going to be the youngest realtor in the world. I'm going to be a psychologist. Uh, it was great. But actually going into college, I was very interested in psychology. So I was taking psychology classes I started out taking classes online through Oregon State University, actually. And one of my professors mentioned, oh, anthropology kind of intertwines with psychology. It's the study of humanity. And I'm like, what? There's a discipline on the study of humanity? Like, that's broad. And I was like, but that's cool because I like people. So I was like, I'll try it. So it was an intro to anthropology class. And I loved it. Oh, my gosh. Because... I mean, the reason why I wanted to go into psychology is because I liked people. I just, I love talking. I am extroverted. And so, yeah, it was just very interesting that there was a whole field that could study people and their culture and their biology and their language. And then I happened to stumble across an intro to archaeology class. And that's kind of where I was very fascinated by that. That being said, I wasn't completely sold on archaeology after that class. In fact, I actually wanted to go into neuroanthropology going into when I transferred to St. Mary's College of Maryland. So I wanted to study nature's effects on the brain. So living in more forested, mountainous landscapes compared with cityscapes and how that affects our brain chemistry, our ways of thinking. And so I knew that I wanted to get an anthropology degree, but I wasn't completely sold on archaeology per se. That kind of led into my advisor at the time in my undergrad. And he was like, hey, like you should take a field school because as part of your degree, you have to do an internship of some sort. And this counts as an internship. Keep in mind, I was living in Maryland at the time. Maryland is humid. It's hot. It's muddy sometimes. And I was like, oh, like, that sounds disgusting. Like me being outside all the time in the dirt in Maryland. That sounds horrid. It was I was I was dreading it. Bugs. I'm a mosquito magnet. (laughs) I can't even tell you how many mosquito bites I got that summer. But that being said, 
I found my first artifact in the ground. And I think it was something super simple, like a nail or a brick, because I was excavating a historical archaeology site. And I was like, oh, my God, like someone 300 years ago was holding this artifact in their hand, using it for some purpose. And it was it kind of hit me in that moment that I really wanted to do this as a field of study. I I had a similar experience doing that. I think the actual physical recovering of an artifact can really, it like changed my brain chemistry after that. And I became super excited about archaeology and in the past. And I kind of had the inkling that I was going to go into it, but the actual field science part of it convinced me as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's very convincing. (laughs) Yeah. You're from the East Coast, right? Sorry, I just cut you off. Oh, no. Yeah, I am from the East Coast. It's kind of funny. I did a like a mini circle around the East Coast in terms of where I lived. So I was born in West Virginia and I lived there for a couple of years. And then we moved because I thought the PetSmart was the zoo. And my parents were like, we should enculturate this child. <laughs> <laughs> and so we moved to Pittsburgh, big city. And then we moved to Annapolis. And I don't know. We kind of got tired of the city environment. So then we moved to more rural Maryland and I lived there for quite some time. So I think I spent most of my life in Maryland. Okay. Then segueing from that, I remember you telling me you were homeschooled, right? I was. Yes. I think you're the first that I know of that, that said so. Is there the first homeschooled archaeologist you've had in here? Do you think that influenced you into like what you're doing now? Like the way you like learn to learn and things like that? I feel like it has. And it's mainly because my mom homeschooled me from kindergarten all the way through high school. And I think having the experience to constantly improve my love for learning, because I have a constant love for learning. I mean, that's kind of why I'm going into the PhD. Like, if you don't like learning, then you don't continue your education, right? right. <laughs> and I feel like my mom was very helpful in that direction. Like she kind of pushed me to pursue whatever I was interested in. In high school, I was reading neuroscience books. I was reading sports psychology books because that's what I was interested in at the time. So I could kind of tailor my education to my interests during that particular period in my life. That being said, like, obviously, we had to fulfill specific requirements. We had portfolio reviews every year where we had to give our portfolios to an educator in a public school. They had to review our portfolios and they had to approve us so that we could move on to the next grade. So we had the requirements, but we also had very flexible learning opportunities. Yeah, because it's always struck me interesting, like the way you're so, I would say, like, yeah, you just really like learning and you're super intelligent, like it's the way public school is, it kind of puts those fires out for a lot of people because they don't want to, they don't know stuff like this exists or they think they have to go to college to be, you know, an accountant or something dumb they don't want to do with math. But like, it's just, yeah, you're you're, you're excelling at what you're doing, I think, because of that, because you had an environment which didn't stifle you, I guess. Yeah, thank you. I kind of feel like that too. And I think something else that kind of helped me going into college actually was the ability to learn by myself and like figure out problems by myself. I mean, yes, I had my mom's help, but I also had a lot of self problem solving situations in my homework. And so I kind of sat down with that homework page and was like, okay, how do I figure this out? And I feel like 
ultimately that helps me in college with like group projects Especially um, in my own work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then I feel like it also helps me in grad school too, because I mean, I'm dealing with this like crazy research question of whether or not people 13,000 years ago are eating these mice. Right. <laughs> and I kind of had to sit down and be like, well, how am I going to test this? Yes, I had the help of my advisor, a lot of help, <laughs> but I also like had to deal with this question on my own and tackle it. So it was fun. Cool. Yeah, I think I think for, at least for grad school, I mean, it's it's super important for you to learn the skills yourself and, and have help and have guidance and stuff like that. But actually learning those things, I feel like is what grad school is for learning to write, learning to research, learning to a bunch of trades, et cetera. So I'm glad that you felt like you got that experience and can bring that into the next stage of your, of your academic career. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. If I remember you telling me correctly this summer, homeschooled, and then you went to, you did the Oregon online thing. Then you went to Maryland and you went to campus classes there. And then from there, how did you get to Wyoming? Yeah. So I was homeschooled up until I was 16 and I graduated high school at 16. And then I went to undergrad and I finished that in two years with double majors and a minor. So I finished undergrad at 18. And so I kind of had a crossroads at that point. I kind of had to decide whether or not I was going to continue my education just go for grad school or go and gain some work experience and then come back to grad school because I was so young and I kind of had that option, right? So ultimately I decided to just go for grad school, take the plunge because I was still really interested in learning. And I feel like I also wanted to have the opportunity to learn new theoretical perspectives because in college it was all historical archaeology based. Mm -hmm. And I knew that through classes in college, I wanted to pursue zooarchaeology. So the study of animal remains in archaeological context. That being said, I was getting tired of looking at chickens, pigs, and cows (laughs) and sheep on a consistent basis. Those four species. It was a, it was very bland. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew I, I wanted to diversify my taxa, like learn new osteological markers, under understand different ways of differentiating species on a wider scale. To do that, I needed to work in a place with really good faunal preservation. Back east, that's not great. There no. is humidity <laughs> and acidic soils <laughs> that just destroys bone. So from that, I knew that I needed to look at grad schools out west where the final preservation was better. So I applied to a couple different grad schools. I got into all of them, but I ultimately chose Wyoming for a number of reasons. One, I really aligned with the professor's research interests. We really connected in a lot of different ways over Zoom meetings because it was at the height of COVID, which was interesting. I also found that in talking to some of the grad students at Wyoming, they were very supportive. They were like, yeah, this is a good environment. It was important for me to reach out because I am a female in academia. Wanted to make sure that the professors were actually telling the truth in terms of uh, where they're at in regards to females in academia, if you know what I mean. (laughs) And I also 
I think what really sold me on Wyoming was that the department was so collaborative and everybody was willing to uplift each other and help each other out in their projects. Whereas I feel like at a couple other grad schools I applied to, that kind of wasn't the case. It was a more competitive environment and more cutthroat. And that really wasn't what I was looking for. Good. Obviously the three of us are biased, but I'd say you made a good choice. Thanks. Um, Go Wyoming. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's a perfect, yeah, note. Connor, do you want to do it? On that note, we're going to cowboy our way out of here. Welcome back to episode 147 of the Life in Ruins podcast. We have McKenna Latinsky here. And I am just going to start off by saying that your defense was probably one of the the best I've been to. Well-organized, well-spoken, well-thought-out, the whole process. I, I was really, really impressed. And, and we had talked before and, and kind of chatted about stuff and your research. And it was really cool to see it all kind of come together in this kind of final presentation. Sometimes uh, defenses are bad and it's hard for people who are in grad school to present well. Mine was boring as shit, I can tell you that. And pretty dry. I was but there. I, I, yeah, it was bad. <laughs> that was, it was bad. not good. Um, but it was like uh, I felt way more entertained, and uh, I really, I really, truly enjoyed your defense. So well done. Thank you. That actually means a lot because sometimes, from an insider's perspective, I don't know how well I'm doing. Like, I'm not gonna lie. I practiced against a wall. I'm not kidding, like at least 50 times. <laughs> like wow. I practice like every single day for a month, sometimes more than once a day, just to make sure I was articulating my sentences correctly. I was like not able to look at a script at all. Like I, I put a lot of effort into it. But it showed. It showed thank absolutely. You. I appreciate it. I, I overthink a lot, so that's probably <laughs> why. <laughs> I haven't uh, seen it yet. I mean, I, I couldn't be there, but... I'm excited to see it because I've heard from multiple people that you knocked it out of the park. So thank good. you. Good job. And yes, some defenses, no offense to the people that were there in my tenure, just sometimes you're like, that wasn't good, <laughs> but they passed. <laughs> yeah. but, I mean, I mean, not everyone is like a super good presenter. public speaker and that's, I don't think yeah. that's fully taught, at least fleshed out in grad school. I mean, you should be presenting a lot and doing it, but it doesn't that is mean- something. Yeah. For the audience listening that, doesn't that hasn't gone to school either wants to go to school writing obviously is the main thing you need to be good at that's why they make you take english classes as pre-comps in college because you got to write but also every class where you have a term paper you usually have to defend it and in grad school for sure you have to be able to talk in front of people and Mm -hmm. i took a public speaking class in my undergrad which really helped because i was pretty nervous before that and I, i mean i guess it worked out well for me but in grad school you get that constant practice with every turn paper turn paper and you have your peers that you go to every class with so it's a comfortable group that you get pretty much comfortable talking in front of which i think is another benefit of a cohort yeah and you get Um, lots of at least our stuff was a lot of discussion based so you're pretty much presenting your side of the case every time you're in class yeah and making arguments and stuff like that so it really forces you to be articulate or articulated as a Sebastian said, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I feel like Wyoming does a really good job of like preparing you for the defense. Like Todd was basically telling me that they wouldn't put a student in the position of defending their thesis if they wouldn't 
they if they weren't ready, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and I feel like there's a lot of nice steps towards the defense. So like at the end of your first year, you have the four field presentation where you have to like propose a master's thesis topic, kind of defend that. And then obviously there's the prospectus. I really enjoyed the prospectus defense. That was really fun. And I think that prepared me the most for my defense was just because like I proposed my thesis, I proposed my methods and everything. And then it was an hour long brainstorming session with my three committee members. And it was intimidating, but walking out of it, I was like, I had so much fun. It was great. To reiterate for the audience, what she's talking about is a, well, I mean, I mean, you can explain it. Like what's a prospectus presentation. It's like, it's private, right? Yeah, it's private. It's just with your three committee members associated with your thesis. Essentially, you go in, you describe some background research, what you propose to research for your thesis, your timeline, what your methods are, just the steps you're going to take to make sure you can complete your thesis, basically. And then afterwards, they ask you questions or your committee member, committee members ask you questions, and then they kind of feed off of that. I describe it as intimidating because you're sitting in a room with three people that already have the doctorate degrees and they're clearly smarter than you <laughs> and yeah. they're brainstorming themselves. And it's like, oh my gosh, like this is crazy. Yeah. I remember mine too. Cause it was like a small room with uh, Dr. Kelly, Dr. Saraville and this guy named Dr. Walrath who fell asleep during mine. <laughs> and I was like, I think Todd and Bob are both like kind of talking louder and louder to get, to get him to wake up because he there's the other thing too you have to have an outside committee member that shows that you can collaborate with people outside of your uh, your discipline and like i found an engineer who like clearly had no interest in archaeology and he was just like there to look at my math which todd could easily do himself anyway and he was just kind of like it was like eight in the morning he's not not i didn't blame him but <laughs> Yeah. Afterwards, though, the brain session and he brought in some good points about like physics and like the parameters of the experiment and things like that. So, yeah, it is beneficial to do that. And yeah, I don't think we've talked about that in detail here before. Yeah, I I think I blacked out mine. I don't remember it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I remember it. That's just grad school in general. So on to your actual defense and, and your research. Could you explain? I think you had three or four broad topics that you were focusing on as part of your master's thesis, which is first of all, impressive because I had two. So there's that. Um, (laughs) But yeah, if you don't mind explaining that. Yeah, definitely. So my master's thesis focuses on analyzing the microfauna remains from the Lapral Mammoth site, which is a mammoth kill and campsite located in Converse County, Wyoming, dates to around 12,900 years ago contains a diverse assemblage of artifacts, including lithic technologies, ochre, charcoal, bone needle fragments, a bone bead, and the remains of large and small vertebrate animals. To back up a little bit, what really took off or kickstarted my thesis was this big debate in Clovis archaeology known as the generalist versus specialist debate. And that's kind of focused on the extent to which paleo-indigenous peoples preferentially targeted large animals on the landscape, or whether both small and large animals were pursued upon encounter to ensure hunter-gatherer survival. So there's lots of different articles on taking different sides of the debate, 
So that's kind of where my first question comes in, is I'm trying to test whether or not these small animals that exist at Laprelle are naturally associated, if they're just natural occurrences or intrusions on the landscape, or if people 13,000 years ago were cooking and consuming these microfauna to aid in their caloric needs, their subsistence purposes. So that's kind of question one. To supplement question one, I pursued a proteomics-based method known as zoarchaeology by mass spectrometry, or ZOOMS. Essentially, what that entails is using peptide mass fingerprinting to differentiate between animal taxa. So you extract collagen from bone, you run it through chemical processes. One of those chemicals is actually an enzyme known as trypsin. So it chops up the collagen protein chain into smaller bits called peptides. It chops them at very specific amino acids called arginine and lysine. So it just standardizes those lengths a bit more. And then you run it through a very specific mass spectrometer. It's called a MALDI-TOF. That's the acronym. I won't go into the long name unless you want me to. But essentially, it results in a series of peaks on a screen. And by comparing the positions of those peaks on the x-axis, which represent the masses of those different peptides, you can compare an unknown archaeological spectra to a known animal spectrum. I think right now we have 60 animals in our library. At the time of my thesis, we had 54. And we can make at least family-level taxonomic identifications. Sometimes we could make genus and species-level identifications from bones that otherwise we didn't know what the heck they were because the bone fragments were so small. So that's the second variable. And then the last variable was... Uh, a, a different question, and that asks what the environment was like back then during site occupation around 13,000 years ago, and how that kind of plays into which vertebrate animals were available on the landscape if these people were pursuing the animals for subsistence purposes. So those are kind of the three variables that I looked at from my thesis. I'm going to ask two questions, I guess, rhetorically, just to I mean, I think I know the answers to them, but just so the audience gets a feel. So after filming you do the zooms like process and stuff, my in my head, my analysis of it was essentially you break down this bone dust, liquefy it, put it into a, a computer, and that liquefied bone looks a little more like this deer liquid bone than it does the chicken one. And like therefore, like, is that right? Like it's you're reducing the bone down and comparing it to living samples? Yeah, that's essentially yeah. it. So you're specifically looking at the collagen associated with that bone. So you're not looking at the mineral component at all, just mm -hmm. the collagen structure. And yeah, you're able to, through this liquid sample that you spot onto this moldy plate, and then the series of peaks on the screen, which kind of look like a barcode. I like right. to call it a barcode for species identification. You can essentially say, okay, this barcode looks more like this deer or this pocket gopher or this squirrel. And therefore, you can come up with likelihoods of it being a particular species. Okay. Yeah. And I guess for people listening to like the, you can, with a bison mandible, you can pick up a bison mandible if it's intact and you can compare it to a wolf mandible and say like, okay, this is clearly a bison. We know what this is. But for the tiny stuff, 
it's really hard. And this hard science stuff is like a really cool way to go about it. And it's something I, I never knew of until you explained it to me. Yeah, especially because it's like that's what's preserved on a lot of sites is small little fragments. So potentially this research allows us to identify these small fragments and really get a better picture of what people are eating in the past or destroying, killing, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it's very useful for fragmentary assemblages. I know my microfauna assemblage only had complete molars in 15 cases. But the the rest of the bones, I analyzed 4,796 little fragments. And all of them were just that, fragments. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, And speaking of those fragments... Something I, I wanted to ask you to, I guess, to elaborate on is like the the reason you're doing that, obviously, is because like, I, I mean, again, this is for the audience listening. Basically, what I'm saying is for dumb me trying to like put this simply, people think Clovis hunted a lot of megafauna because that's really all that preserves. Like there's big mammoths and bison hanging out there, but there's still all that little bone in the fire and stuff that people are looking at, or that's just still there at sites. And what your thesis is, is looking at that tiny amount, like the small things and seeing what they were eating, right? Is that what a good way to put it? Yeah, because like you mentioned, there's a lot of articles out there, one of which was written by Dr. Todd Surivel and Nicole Wagsback. And essentially they argued that even though proboscideans like mastodon and mammoth are very rare on the Pleistocene landscape, they're the most abundant taxa in the archaeological record. And because of that, it suggests a high degree of specialization. Mm-hmm. But then we have other papers like Byers and Uggen, and they argue that even though megafauna should have been the preferred food source on the landscape, these Clovis peoples in the past should have been pursuing a wide variety of taxa, including rodents and lagomorphs, to ensure their caloric and nutritional needs. So that's essentially the framework that I'm going off of. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at the microfauna in a couple different ways to answer the question of whether or not they are natural or cultural. So I'm looking at densities of microfauna according to their association with hearth features with the expectation of if they are showing this cultural pattern, they'll be very dense in these hearths and then slowly become less and less dense as you move away from the hearth. Mm -hmm. I'm also looking at burning distributions on horizontal and vertical axes through a burning scale. So zero represents not burned at all. Three represents fully carbonized, meaning very black in color. And six being fully calcined, meaning it's white in coloration. So that's the second variable that I'm looking at in terms of question one. And then the third is taxonomic distributions, where I'm expecting a significant difference in taxa represented at the occupation service compared with the non-cultural elevations if people were targeting specific taxa for caloric needs. Kind of backtracking to expectations for burning, Sergant et al. and Suravel 2022 argued that in terms of invisible hearth features, you should expect to see highly dense and clustering of calcined bone. And so I was expecting to see that pattern in microfauna, just very dense clustering of calcined microfauna in association with the hearths 
if these people were cooking and consuming them. And that's the theory. The theory there is that people are sitting next to the fire, eating, discarding, and that that those remains stay close to this central feature. Yeah. And it's actually based on a previous paper by Kinnan and Meltzer, because they argued that there are several sites with strong evidence, quote unquote, for microfauna subsistence use in North America associated with Clovis sites. I think there are seven different sites that they proposed. And I would argue for various reasons that the Aubrey site near the Trinity River in Texas is one of the strongest arguments for possible subsistence use. But even so, they only used a single variable to justify this kind of idea of microfauna possibly being consumed by people in the past. And that one variable was burning. So they essentially looked at the microfauna assemblage. They said, hey, some of these bones are charred black, others are calcined white. And based on that alone, we're kind of brushing our hands and saying people were eating these. Some big brain stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I think on that note, maybe we'll have her summarize the the, the findings beginning of the next segment. Yep. That's my next question, I guess. So yes, next next segment. Sounds great. I'm here with Connor and uh, our guest, McKenna Latinsky. Uh, we've been talking about her master's thesis and her work. And I guess last segment we've covered what you did, but I want to ask McKenna, what'd you find? Right. So in the last segment, we basically summarized that I was looking at what people were eating, right? Are they just eating large animals or just eating small animals or both? So I found that based on the number of variables that I looked at, it's looking more like the majority of the microfauna at Laprelle are natural rather than culturally associated. So let me go into that a little bit more. Burning, we're not seeing calcined bone. In fact, out of like 1,080 burned bones, only eight were calcined. So that kind of rules out that a little bit. In terms of density distributions from hearths, we're seeing that the archaeological distributions are deviating from a randomized model to a lesser extent at the occupation surface compared with the non-cultural elevations. Those peaks at the non-cultural elevations are probably impacted by fragmentation, and other site formation processes. So just how many bones are there and fragmented at particular locations. And then based on taxa, I kind of thought it was interesting. There was a statistically significant difference between taxa at the occupation surface compared to the non-cultural elevations, but that difference was largely driven by the abundance of bird bone at the cultural occupation surface. That is not a cultural signature, though. That's a result of taphonomic bias or natural processes that lead to a higher degree of fragmentation associated with bird bones. So it's not really saying, oh, people in the past were eating birds. It's not the case at all. It's just uh, how these bones ended up in the ground and what processes impacted them after the fact. You said that there was like a one bird bone that was, was it 17 pieces for one bird humerus or something ridiculous like that? 
Yeah, it was a single point in the ground and there were 30 different fragments of bird bone. And I have a lot of confidence that they all belong to the same bird humerus because they were all 30 bird humerus fragments. It seems hmm. kind of sketchy. Yeah. <laughs> just all the same place. <laughs> <laughs> so... What those results then, does that lead you more to think that they were generalists or that they were specialists? That's a good question. So I'm not fully discounting the concept of people possibly consuming small animals at this site. Just as an example, in a hearth context, a rabbit phalanx was recovered and it was completely calcined. So if we're thinking about the ethnographic record, I read a paper and it basically was arguing that it takes a young man a lifetime to achieve the efficiency of hunting a large animal. So if we're thinking about that concept, they were probably practicing on these smaller animals Mm -hmm. and maybe, maybe, I don't know for sure, but perhaps that's why that rodent phalanx, rabbit phalanx to be specific, was calcined in that fire. But that being said, the majority, the large majority of the bones at Laprell look more natural. They're showing a natural pattern on the landscape, more randomly distributed compared with uh, a very undeniable cultural signature. Mm-hmm. So based on that, Laprell, as a case specific site, it's looking to be more specialist. They're looking like they are focusing in on eating that mammoth, bison and tiquis, and other large ungulates at the site. Again, I can't speak to Clovis culture as a whole across North America yet because Laprell yeah. is so case specific. I mean, we got we got the mammoth there, right? We know <laughs> that they were eating the big thing. <laughs> so yeah. but but that being said, I feel like my thesis gives future researchers the tools and the opportunities to undertake these detailed analyses focusing on microfauna across other sites in North America. Because right now, I, as far as I know, no one's gone to the level of detail that I have in microfauna analysis in closed context. So it just gives future researchers and archaeologists the opportunity to say, hey, we can do these analyses. We can try to see if Aubrey per se is actually cultural or natural. Damn. (laughs) Yeah. Are you going to continue this sort of research into your PhD or where do you kind of envision that going? Yeah, I'm still kind of brainstorming about PhD topics. That's what they can't. Yeah. I definitely want to continue with zooms, that zooarchaeology by mass spectrometry technique, because there are very few people in North America pursuing this proteomics-based method. The majority of people doing zooms are over in Europe. So the fact that I have the opportunity to learn more about this technique, refine our methods, um, I feel like it's very cutting edge and could contribute to the field a lot. So I definitely want to keep doing that, but I'm kind of 50-50 on whether or not I want to stick with microfauna or kind of branch out into the other larger animals. Because like I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, this podcast, 
the reason I came to grad school is to improve my ability to analyze and identify taxa in general. So I wasn't specifically coming to grad school to look at rodents. (laughs) 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 Where I ended up, but my goal was to look at as broad of taxa representation as possible, I guess. Would that involve possibly other time periods too? Or would you, are you going to stick your toe, foot, whole leg into the Clovis debate? Yeah. So I'm kind of undecided on that too at this point and whether or not I just want to stick with Clovis for my PhD. I definitely want to stick with pre-contact archaeology. I'm kind of done with historical archaeology. No no offense to the historical archaeologists out there. You're in good company. But <laughs> it's not for me. <laughs> so I definitely want to stick with pre-contact archaeology. But yeah, I think I'm very interested in studying the different species of megafauna a bit more. It's something I never had the opportunity to do in undergrad at all. So I definitely want to dive into that a bit more, probably study birds and fish and become very efficient at identifying those. I know as as a side project, I analyzed a little over 3,000 fish bone fragments for breedaring associated with a site up in Alaska. So that was later pre-contact. And I had a lot of fun with that. So I'm just open to exploring my options. For those listening, nobody wants to look at fish bones and bird bones usually, because why would you do that when you could look at marath bones? So if you want to do that, you'll be very employable. Is um, <laughs> Your research uh, will do well. Yeah. <laughs> fish bones are very hard, very hard, especially because the assemblage I was working with also was very fragmented. And these things were tiny. So I was losing my mind because (laughs) I had to get my analysis done within a semester. And so I was analyzing over 3000 fish bones on top of my thesis, on top of teaching two labs and taking another class that semester. I was, who are you? (laughs) Who are you? Are you a real person? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe. Your work ethic um, is, is your work ethic is beyond me sometimes. It's a very impressive dude. Thank you. I, I was gonna ask, like this summer when we were digging, uh, you and I dug it, not to plug it again, but Laprell, and then we dug it uh Warren Mammoth sites. I don't think we've talked about on here yet. Mm-hmm. When you were digging this summer, so like how how should I phrase this? I didn't do a field work based master's thesis. Connor did. So, uh, but like yours wasn't an excavation kind of just survey. So like McKenna, when you're out there knowing what you wanted to do for your thesis, like when you're digging, are you actively thinking about this stuff and like thinking about the hearths that way? Or is it kind of just you're out there digging? I think my second year at LaPrelle, I was thinking about those questions. My first year at LaPrelle, honestly, I didn't know what I wanted to do for a thesis yet. In fact, it was that summer, my first summer at LaPrelle, that Todd Serville, my advisor, came up to me and he sat down one night and was like, so McKenna, you like animal bones? And I was like, yeah, I like animal bones. And Todd was like, do you like small animals? And I kind of pondered and I was like, um, tell me more. So, <laughs> But that was kind of at the end of the summer. So I wasn't thinking about those questions at the time. I was just trying to dip my toe in Clovis archaeology because it was something that was totally new to me, right? Pre-contact archaeology was too, totally new to me, let alone a 13,000-year-old site. 
But I think after my first year of grad school, knowing what I wanted to do for my thesis, I was in the mindset of like, okay, if I see small animals at this site, I'm really going to take my time to look at them either in situ, meaning like in the ground or in the water screens. I mean, David, you kind of saw me picking through was, the water screens. Uh, the reason I asked that, I was about to bring this up too, is the like when I met you, we were picking through stuff at the screens and you were like amped about this like rodent fe- like femur. And I was like, geez, this kid. <laughs> you were really into the bones, uh, which is like those kind of things. I And this is why your thesis is good. I, not to say I don't care about them because I do now, but like at the time it's like, okay, it's a little rodent bone, like, cool. I'm going to go dig up a mammoth. <laughs> but like you're, you're looking at stuff that's like a really important question that no one has like really looked at before, especially with Clovis. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, no, I get that though, because in my thesis, I kind of talk about how a lot of researchers in the past have focused in on the larger animals because they're cool, right? And you can learn a lot about the site from these large animals as a whole. And so a lot of times the small animals are overlooked. So I think that's kind of why I was hyped about, I think it was a Chrysetidae rodent (laughs) femur. You you named like the genus and species of it, just looking at it. And I was like, (laughs) respect. it was, I couldn't get down to genus and species, but I do remember it was the Chrysetidae family, which is to the audience, a huge family in rodents. It's like uh, a million You were taxonomically thrilled. <laughs> yes, I was very excited, but I think it's because like going back to the excavation procedures at Laprell, the only reasons we're able to recover the small animals is because we're doing one sixteenth inch water screening. Otherwise, they would have just fallen through the screen and I would never mm. have the opportunity to look at them. So, yeah, I was super excited. I also remember in the auger, because we were augering this summer, there were fish bones. It was I a preopercle and a supraopercle. And I was so hyped about that. I still look at those pictures and I'm like, mm, that looks nice. That's a yeah, wicker pumpernickel it, it, fish. <laughs> It was, it was say that again. a bad joke that just didn't land. We'll continue. Um, and, uh, no, uh, I was just asking what I will say on, on the opposite side of that, you do get good data of it, but it's a fucking pain in the ass to to screen there. Back yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is. <laughs> oh, I, so, I would even go f- as far as like soul breaking. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, would agree. Line. <laughs> you kind of get to the end of the day and you're like, just get through the screen, you little sediment jerk. <laughs> No, no. And the conversations that you have at the screen, like, yeah, it's just so. You're like delusional a little bit, too. Honestly. You're sent to prison for the day, essentially. Like, some people (laughs) love to screen. I don't. Like, I'm I'm out. Yeah. And, like, I was volunteering, too. You guys were all getting paid. So I was just like, uh, I don't have to screen, but I probably should screen. (laughs) Yeah. It's (laughs) not my favorite. But the screens are super important because that's where. Well, once that water, so I guess what we're talking about, guys, is like you get giant chunks of dirt out of the ground, dig it up, put it into a bucket. The bucket goes down from the site down to a place where you dump it through a screen, but it's such thick sediment called calcium carbonate. You have to push it with a hose and then scrub and scrub it and scrub it through like this wire mesh. And then once that's done, you put it in the sun and it will dry out in that place within like 10 minutes because it's so hot. 
And that's where McKenna goes in and like picks through and finds those tiny little bones and shell. And where uh, most of us, like I would be looking for lithics there, but there are a lot of bones in there. Yeah, that you found. So since we're like, we're like winding down, what would you recommend? Do you have anything you would tell undergrads, possibly even homeschooled kids who are interested in anthropology, archaeology, and any advice you can give to them? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, And I'll try to answer it to the best of my ability. I think the best advice I can give to people is go after your dreams, like go after what interests you. And if people tell you that you can't do something, prove them wrong. I mean, obviously, don't do something crazy, but. (laughs) (laughs) Within the realm of reason, yeah. Yeah, but if if you want to go into archaeology, don't let someone tell tell you that you can't because it's an amazing field. You learn so much about yourself and the world around you. I think to homeschooled kids, I know from experience that some people give homeschool kids shit, for lack of better words, for being homeschooled. They're like, oh, you lack social skills. You lack the ability to go to classes and socialize in that environment. And I think going into college, I proved a lot of people wrong, especially because of my age. I mean, in undergrad, I didn't talk about my age at all. I mean, I was an undergrad from the time I was 16 to 18. And now I'm 20 and finished my master's. So in that respect, like, yeah, I just feel like in summary, do what you love and what makes you happy. It's a, yeah, good way to put it. Um, Yeah. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. This has been so much fun. I appreciate it. Uh, And congrats again on getting your master's. It's good stuff. Thank you. Yeah, I'm very excited. So we usually ask for any literature, books, things that you would recommend for people who would be interested in microfauna or stuff that you do currently? Well, I would recommend Buyers and again, 2005. Should we expect large game specialization in the late Pleistocene and optimal foraging perspective on early Paleo-Indian prey choice? So that's one that I would recommend. I would also recommend Faring 1995, which is basically a summary of the Aubrey Clovis site down in Texas. It's just a good read and to give the audience some more contextualization as to what past research has been done on microfauna assemblages and how people in the past have argued whether or not these small animals are cultural or natural. Oh, fun read. Gingrich... 2019, misidentified Clovis age fishbone at Shawnee Minisink and how that fishbone was actually black paint. That's a fun one. Ooh. Oh. Mm-hmm. Classic whodunit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> fishbone is black paint. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, Wagsback and Suravel, 2003, Clovis hunting strategies or how to make out on plentiful resources. It's a good one. To, to, to just to counteract the Byers and Uggen paper, it's just it falls on a different side of the spectrum. It's more a specialization framework. And then just, I don't know, I would recommend just looking up microfauna archaeology clovis sites and just see what pops up. It's not going to be much, but there's going to be more here soon. McKenna, where can the audience find you on the social medias, the emails and the LinkedIn's? 
Sure. Yeah. So my Instagram account is private, but it's ML Latinsky. And then my email is M-L-I-T-Y-N-S-K-I at U-W-Y-O dot E-D-U. So that's a great way to contact me. Cool. And I guess, yeah, that's, uh, that's it for me, Connor. We have to ask this because this is a life of ruins. If you were given the chance again, would you still choose to live a life in ruins? Micro ruins. Specifically studying micro <laughs> <laughs> Yes, absolutely. <laughs> if I had to go back and do my thesis again, I probably would. <laughs> Oh, sorry if I stole your thunder on that. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't realize you were building up for that. I was like, he missed it. <laughs> My bad. All right. Well, I just destroyed Connor's soul and we just interviewed McKenna Latinsky. You can find her contact information in the show notes and description below. And guys, please be sure to rate and review the podcast, provide feedback on whichever podcasting platform you're listening to on the show. If you do so this week and send us a screenshot to the Life Endurance email, Carlton will send you a sticker. He's not here to confirm that he can or can't, but he will. $5. $5. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't promise that one. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, McKenna, been great having you. Yeah, look forward to see what you do for your PhD. Look forward to digging with you both this summer at some point. Actually, I can't dig, so... I'll look forward to sitting in a chair watching you guys dig. So I'll see you guys. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Thank you again. This was right. the best. All right. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Don't you tell a joke at the end? It turns out we do. Why are plants so thin? Why? They are light eaters. Wow. Oh, nice. <laughs> She's not impressed. Clean. <laughs> Clean. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. Yeah, it's been great. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland. DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.